Here we go. We're going to start in Romans chapter 9. With Christ is my witness, I speak with utter truthfulness. My conscience and the Holy Spirit confirm it. My heart is filled with bitter sorrow and unending grief for my people, my Jewish brothers and sisters. I would be willing to be forever cursed, cut off from Christ, if that would save them. They are the people of Israel chosen to be God's adopted children. God revealed His glory to them. He made covenants with them and gave them His law. He gave them the privilege of worshiping Him and receiving His wonderful promises. Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob are their ancestors, and Christ Himself was an Israelite as far as His human nature is concerned. And He is God, the one who rules over everything and is worthy of eternal praise. Amen. Well then, has God failed to fulfill His promise to Israel? No. For not all who are born into the nation of Israel are truly members of God's people. Being descendants of Abraham does not make them truly Abraham's children. For the scriptures say, Isaac is the son through whom your descendants will be counted. Though Abraham had other children too. This means that Abraham's physical descendants are not necessarily children of God. Only the children of the promise are considered to be Abraham's children. For God had promised... I will return about this time next year, and Sarah will have a son. The son was our ancestor Isaac. When he married Rebekah, she gave birth to twins, but before they were born, before they had done anything good or bad, she received a message from God. This message shows that God chooses people according to his own purposes. He calls people, but not according to their good or bad works. She was told, your older son will serve your younger son. In the words of the, of the scriptures, I loved Jacob, but I rejected Esau. So are we saying then that God was unfair? Of course not. For God said to Moses, I will show mercy to anyone I choose, and I will show compassion to anyone I choose. So it is God who decides to show mercy. We can neither choose it nor work for it. For the scriptures say that God told Pharaoh, I have appointed you for the very purpose of displaying my power in you and to spread my fame throughout the earth. So you see, God chooses to show mercy to some and he chooses to harden the hearts of others so that they refuse to listen. Well then, you might say, why does God blame people then for not responding? Haven't they simply done what he makes them to do? No, don't say that. Who are you, a mere human being, to argue with God? Should the thing that was created say to the one who created it, Why have you made me like this? When a potter makes jars out of clay, doesn't he have a right to use the same lump of clay to make one jar for decoration and another to throw garbage into? In the same way, even though God has the right to show his anger and his power, he is very patient with those on whom his anger falls, who are destined for destruction. He does this to make the riches of his glory shine brighter on those to whom he shows mercy, who were prepared in advance for glory, and we are among those whom he selected both from the Jews and from the Gentiles. Concerning the Gentiles, God says in the prophecy of Hosea, those who were not my people I will now call my people, and I will love those whom I did not love before. And then at the place where they told, you are not my people, there they will be called children of the living God. And concerning Isaiah the prophet, and concerning Israel, Isaiah the prophet cried out, Though the people of Israel are as numerous as the sand of the seashore, only a remnant will be saved. For the Lord will carry out his sentence upon the earth quickly and with finality. And Isaiah said the same thing in another place. If the Lord of heaven's armies has not spared a few of our children, we would have been wiped out like Sodom 
destroyed like Gomorrah. So what does this all mean? Even though the Gentiles were not trying to follow God's standards, they were made right with God. And it was by faith that this took place. But the people of Israel who tried so hard to get right with God by keeping the law never succeeded. Why not? Because they were trying to get right with God by keeping the law instead of by trusting in Him. They stumbled over the great rock that was in their path. God warned them of this in the scripture when he said, I am placing a stone in Jerusalem that makes people stumble, a rock that makes them fall. But anyone who trusts in him will never be disgraced. Dear brothers and sisters, the longing of my heart and my prayer to God is for the people of Israel to be saved. I know what enthusiasm they have for God, but it is misdirected zeal. For they don't understand God's way of making people right with himself. Refusing to accept God's way, they cling to their own way of getting right with God by trying to keep the law. For Christ has already accomplished the purpose for which the law was given. As a result, all who believe in him are made right with God. For Moses writes that the law's way of making a person right with God requires obedience to all of its commands. But faith's way of getting right with God says, don't say in your heart, who will go up to heaven to bring Christ down to earth? And don't say, who will go down to the place of the dead to bring Christ back to life again? In fact, it says, the message is very close at hand. It is on your lips and in your heart. And that message is the very message about faith that we preach. If you openly declare that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For it is by believing in your heart that you are made right with God. And it is by openly declaring your faith that you are saved. As the scriptures tell us, anyone who trusts in him will never be disgraced. Jew and Gentile are the same in this respect. They have the same Lord who gives generously to all who call on him. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. But... How can they call on Him to save them unless they believe in Him? How can they believe in Him if they've never heard about Him? And how can they hear about Him unless someone tells them? And how will anyone go and tell them without being sent? That's why the Scriptures say, How beautiful are the feet of messengers who bring good news. But not everyone welcomes the good news. For Isaiah the prophet said, Lord, who has believed our message? So faith comes from hearing. That is hearing the good news about Christ. But I ask, have the people of Israel actually heard the message? Yes, they have. The message has gone throughout the earth and the words to all the world. But I ask, did the people of Israel really understand? Yes, they did. For even in the time of Moses, God said, I will rouse your jealousy through people who are not even a nation. I will provoke your anger through the foolish Gentiles. And later, Isaiah spoke boldly for God, saying, I was found by people who were not looking for me. I showed myself to those who were not asking for me. But regarding Israel, God said, All day long, I opened my arms to them, but they were disobedient and rebellious. So I asked then, has God rejected his own people, the nation of Israel? Of course not. I myself am an Israelite, a descendant of Abraham and a member of the tribe of Benjamin. 
No, God has not rejected his own people whom he chose from the very beginning. Do you realize what the scriptures say about this? Elijah the prophet complained to God about the people of Israel and said, Lord, they have killed your prophets and torn down your altars. I am the only one left, and now they're trying to kill me too. Do you remember God's reply? He said, no, I have 7,000 others who have never bowed down to Baal. It is the same today. For a few of the people of Israel have remained faithful because of God's grace, his undeserved kindness in choosing them. And since it is through God's kindness, then it is not by their good works. For in that case, God's grace would not be what it really is, free and undeserved. So this is the situation. Most of the people of Israel have not found the favor of God that they are looking for so earnestly. A few have, the ones God has chosen, but the hearts of the rest were hardened. As the scriptures say, God has put them into a deep sleep. To this day, he has shut their eyes so that they do not see and closed their ears so that they do not hear. Likewise, David said, let their bountiful table become a snare, a trap that makes them think that all is well. Let their blessings cause them to stumble and let them get what they deserve. Let their eyes go blind so that they cannot see and let their backs be bent forever. Did God's people stumble and fall beyond recovery? Of course not. They were disobedient and so God made salvation available to the Gentiles. But he wanted his own people to become jealous and claim it for themselves. Now if the Gentiles were enriched because the people of Israel turned down God's offer of salvation. Think how much greater a blessing the world will share when they finally accept it. I am saying all this, especially for you Gentiles. God has appointed me as the apostle to the Gentiles. I stress this, for I want somehow to make the people of Israel jealous of what you Gentiles have, so I might save some of them. For since their rejection meant that God offered salvation to the rest of the world, their acceptance will be even more wonderful. It will be life for those who were dead. And since Abraham and the other patriarchs were holy, their descendants will also be holy. Just as the entire batch of dough is holy, because the portion given as an offering is holy. For if the roots of the tree are holy, then the branches will be too. But some of these branches from Abraham's tree, some of the people of Israel have broken off. And you Gentiles who are branches from a wild olive tree have been grafted in. So now you also receive the blessing God has promised Abraham and his children, sharing in the rich nourishment from the root of God's special olive tree. But you must not brag about being grafted in to replace the branches that were broken off. You are just a branch, not a root. Well, you may say, those branches were broken off to make room for me. Yes, but remember, those branches were broken off because they didn't believe in Christ. And you are there because you do believe. So don't think highly of yourself. But fear what could happen, for if, the God, for if God did not spare the original branches, then he won't spare you either. Notice how God is both kind and severe. He is severe toward those who disobeyed, but kind to you if you continue to trust in his kindness. But if you stop trusting, you also will be cut off. 
And if the people of Israel turn from their unbelief, they will be grafted in again. For God has the power to graft them back into the tree. You by nature were a branch cut from a wild olive tree. So if God was willing to do something contrary to nature by grafting you into his cultivated tree, he will be far more eager to graft the original branches back into the tree where they belong. I want you to understand this mystery, dear brothers and sisters, so that you will not feel proud about yourselves. Some of the people of Israel have hard hearts, but this will last only until the full number of Gentiles comes to Christ. And so, all Israel will be saved. As the scriptures say, the one who rescues will come from Jerusalem, and he will turn Israel away from ungodliness, and this is my covenant with them, that I will take away their sins. Many of the people of Israel are now enemies of the good news, and this benefits you Gentiles, yet they are still the people that he loves because he chose their ancestors, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. For God's gifts and his call can never be withdrawn. Once you Gentiles were rebels against God, but when the people of Israel rebelled against him, God was merciful to you instead. Now they are the rebels. And God's mercy has come to you so that they too will share in God's mercy. For God has imprisoned everyone in disobedience so that he could have mercy on everyone. Oh, how great are God's riches and wisdom and knowledge. How impossible it is for us to understand his decisions and his ways. For who can know the Lord's thoughts? Who knows enough to give him advice? And who has given him so much that he needs to pay it back? For everything comes from him and exists by his power and is intended for his glory. All glory to him forever. Amen. And so, dear brothers and sisters, I plead with you to give your bodies to God because of all he has done for you. Let them be a living and holy sacrifice, the kind that he will find acceptable. All right, so if you guys go discuss, I'm just kidding. <laughs> Whew, I need to drink some water. This is one of the most difficult passages, in my opinion, to talk about when we are um, sermonizing. The reason why is because it's super heavy. Adam started last week by discussing chapter 9, and it was super heavy. Um, <clears throat> we are discussing chapters 9, 10, and 11 because it is a cohesive thought process. Now, what I didn't do was I didn't start with Romans chapter 8. I ended on chapter 12, if anybody got that. And that's because the end of chapter 8 and the beginning of chapter 12 are a bookend to the thought process of Romans 9 and 11. Chapter 8 ends with the statement, and I am convinced that neither death nor life dot 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 can separate us from the love of God. Right? And after making that statement, Paul goes into this tirade, what then does that mean to you Jews about the law? 
See, it's important that we bookend and we start chapter 9 by discussing chapter 8. Because there's something that is profound that has now happened. Something that we need to take into account that has now happened. And I'm going to discuss chapter 9, 10, and 11 at length um, for the next three weeks after today. But today I'm just going to kind of give you a big introduction. Okay? So there's something specific that happened in chapter 8. And that is the end of a thought process. When I say the end of a thought process, I don't mean it's the end of Paul's thought process. I mean it's the end of a thought process, a worldview. In other words, if you understand what Romans 1 through 8 is saying, then you can no longer operate the way that you had been operating. This is really important. If you understand what Romans 1 through 8 is saying, you can no longer operate the way that you had been operating. Why do you think that is? Do you even understand what I'm saying? The reason why is because Roman 8, Romans 8 destroys pretty much all previous notions of salvation. Romans 8 says that regardless of the system that you had in place to make you right, to get to God. Really, Romans 1 through 8 says, regardless of the systems that you had in, right, that you had in place to make you right with God. Now, that can be as many systems that you want, as you want. That can be even no systems. You cannot get to God through those systems. It establishes that mankind is filthy. It establishes that mankind falls short of the glory of God. It establishes that God doesn't want that sort of interaction with us. That God wants us simply to remember who He is and to put our faith in Christ. Well, the problem with that, of course, is that we are talking to a largely Jewish population in a Hellenistic culture. What that basically means is these people had spent their entire life working for a relationship with Mashiach, with the Messiah, right? That is what Judaism is. It is for them to establish a life before the Messiah so that they would be ready for the Messiah to come. All of a sudden, what's being said is, you don't need that. All of this work that you did, your righteousness that you've put out there, it is as filthy rags to God. All of this perfection that you've established, it doesn't matter. All have fallen short of God's glory. So nothing that you could do mattered. And Romans 8 puts a capstone on that. It makes it very clear, nothing you did mattered in getting you to God. And then it goes one step further and it destroys the philosophy. In chapter 9, he says, after chapter 8, saying that slavery doesn't work, you're free. In chapter 9, he says, not only does it not work, but you're not entitled. Now that's taking it a whole nother, that's taking it a whole nother level, right? Because the Judaizers believed that people had to work even if they were saved. They still had to work towards something. And it was on the basis of the fact that they were entitled to salvation because they were God's chosen people. 
So they're like, fine, I'm going to step away from these things, but I'm still entitled to it, right? Well, that entitlement led to them not wanting to play with other people. Make sense? If you are entitled to this salvation, and you understand that it's free, and you understand that it can't be taken away from you, what about these other people who now think it's free to them too? Something that has been owned by your culture the entire time. Well, um, those people, they don't count. They need to either be a part of our culture, do works, or they, it doesn't count for them. Paul says that's wrong. Paul says that you are not entitled to God's grace. That is the whole of chapter 9. That you are not entitled to God's grace. You do not have the right to decide who God shows His grace to. Because God makes certain people for certain things. He made Gentiles, believe it or not, to be Gentiles. He made Jews, believe it or not, to be Jews. So, does anybody then have the right to claim salvation for themselves? What do you think? No. Nobody has the right to claim salvation for themselves. Nobody has the right to say to their father, because I am your son, you must give me my inheritance. That's what the Jews are saying. Not only are they saying that, they're saying, because you're not his son, because you're just a foster child, you don't get his inheritance. Nobody has the right to say that to God. Because it's not by the fact that you are his child that you get that inheritance. What is it that said? Abraham had how many sons? He had at least two. And only one of them got the inheritance. And why did that child get the inheritance? Was it because it was the firstborn child? No, in fact, it was not the firstborn child. Ishmael was the firstborn child. Isaac got the inheritance because God chose Isaac. What about Jacob and Esau? Did Jacob, no offense Jacob, but that, may, that name means deceiver, supplanter. Did Jacob get the inheritance because he supplanted his brother Esau? God chose Jacob before he was even born to get the inheritance. Whether you're firstborn, whether you are even chosen by God, it's all up to God. It's not up to you. So we don't have the right to claim salvation for ourselves as if we are entitled to it. Do we try to take grace for ourselves? I would say that in this day and age, that is a huge aspect of the church. There's a whole movement in it. It's called prosperity theology. 
where we name and claim what, we belongs, what belongs to us because we are children of the living God. And we are entitled to it. And because God is our Father, He needs to give it to us. There's another movement in the church. It's called hyper-grace. Same thing. Because God is our Father, He needs to give it to us. But Romans chapter 9 says that is not the truth. It is because God is our Father that He gives it to us. But we do not get to claim it for ourselves. This doesn't mean, I'm not saying, that we don't take ownership of it when we get it. It doesn't mean that we don't treat it seriously or with respect. I'm asking you to be dynamic here and think about it in terms of personhood. Because everything we do is about relationship. It's not about mechanics. There is a difference, and everybody knows it, between saying to their parents, I know that you're going to give this to me, and I'm stoked about it, and I'm going to accept it, versus give it to me now because I deserve it. Right? Huge difference between the two. We talk about Romans 10. Paul goes on. And he talks about how Romans 10 is about the idea that salvation cannot be attained. He talks about, he doesn't talk about Romans 10. He talks about the idea that salvation cannot be attained. That salvation is a free gift from God. But believe it or not, Romans 10 really explores relationship more than anything else. I'll get into that in a second. Romans 11, then, goes on to discuss more about the idea that the Jews are going to be saved because God chose to give them that gift. Now, you might say that that seems weird because Romans 9 says that the Jews are not going to be saved. Well, Romans 9 does not say the Jews are not going to be saved. What Romans 9 says is the Jews do not have a right to make God save them. You see the difference? Romans 11 takes it a step further and says, because God is who God is, he will save them. Romans 9 says, you need to be who you are. You need to not put yourself in place of God. So there was a pre-Christ Judaism that was taking place. And it was this Romans 9 through 11 that was really altering, well, it was really addressing this pre-Christ Judaism and, and pre-Christ, um, I don't know what you call it, Gentilism, paganism. This pre-Christ paganism where these people had come to a saving knowledge of Christ and it shattered their, their philosophy. And Paul wanted to make it clear that there is a right way of taking your salvation. There's a right way of taking your salvation. So what do we think that right way of taking our salvation is? Seriously, okay. That's really the question before us. What is the right way of taking our salvation? We shouldn't throw it in the face of our God. And we shouldn't throw it in the face of others. That's what Romans 9 says. We should understand that it's a free gift. 
That's what Romans 10 says. And we should have a confident hope that it is a truth. That's what Romans 11 says. That's the quick breakdown of it. So how are we taking our salvation? Do we receive God's message correctly as it's laid out in Scripture? Do we allow our lives to be motivated by God? See, really the discussion we've been having this whole year is about education. Well, I'll let you, what are we discussing? Education, discernment, and beauty, right? It's not about having a relationship with God. That's where this conversation becomes really applicable to us, right? Because in most churches and in most cases when somebody's sharing the gospel, it's all about getting that relationship with God. We in this church believe that to be milk. Milk is good, okay? But we're kind of beyond that. We need more nourishment than that. So it's not about getting a relationship with God. We have a relationship with God. We understand it. The question is, what type of relationship with God do we have, right? That's what we always focus on here, right? What type of relationship do we have with God? Is your relationship a Romans 9, 10, and 11 relationship? Are you a person who looks at your relationship with God and understands that you don't have a right to His grace? What do you think about that? I want you to really think about that. As Christians, do you think that you're entitled to God's grace? How does that play out? How would that play out in everyday life? Do you go around like a little Christian bully being entitled to your Father's grace? I mean, that can look a number of ways for every individual, right? Are you entitled? When you stand before God, do you take certain things for granted because, hey, God's a good God? Or do you remember that this same God who is our Father is in a position that requires from us, requires, meaning it mandates to us. It's almost like a command that we be in a position of fear and trembling because of the greatness of his power. See, in today's Christianity, we focus on the fact that God is a good God. We forget that God is an awesome God. I don't mean awesome like... God is a God that we should fear because he is a being that is uncontrollable by us and unlimited in power and authority. Therefore, as a finite being, we should have an understanding of who he is that says, I am small and he could squish me at any moment. That is proper. It's proper for us to think that. We should also understand that God is good. That though I'm small, he would not squish me because he loves me. And if the two things are not together, 
then you are an entitled child. Because that's the problem, right? When we see children who are disobedient to their parents or just have a bad attitude around their parents, what usually have they forgotten? It's not that their parent is a good parent, right? They usually believe that their parent is a good parent. That's the basis by which they get away with everything, right? Because they know their parent isn't going to smack them upside the head. What have they forgotten? To fear and respect their parent. You do not get God's grace because you are you. Because you're made in the image of God, you get God's grace. Everybody should feel good and love because God is a God of love. Seriously, that's not what the scripture says. There's a reason why God paints himself as a jealous God. You want to talk about God being a jealous God? Paul did. He gave us an example in talking about God being a jealous God, didn't he? Those of you who should have picked it up. He quoted it, what, three times? He chose in the middle of his discourse in Romans, he chose to use one person as an example of his jealousy. Nope, not Baal. Anyone want to venture a guess? Who's got it? Who's got it? Anyone? He chose a single individual to talk about. He quotes him a bunch of times. Romans 9, verse 25 and on. Concerning the Gentiles, God says in the prophecies of Hosea, You guys remember Hosea? What's the deal with Hosea? Anyone want to fill that in? Mm-hmm. Yes. So in the talking about this, chapter 9 towards the end, God decides to quote through Paul, or by Paul, through, Isaiah, or through Hosea, from the book of Hosea. Now your backstory on Hosea is exactly what Beth said. God calls Hosea a prophet to marry a whore so that he can use the relationship that Hosea is supposed to have with this whore uh, to show his relationship with Israel. So when we're looking at that, and we're looking about what's being talked about in Romans 9, 10, and 11, we're now given a framework by which God sees us being little children in the relationship. Us not understanding his grace. Oddly, 
It's not what you might have thought. Because in this time, I have been speaking to you about God as our Father, right? Right? That's not how God wants to be seen. And if we continue to look at God as the means by which we are sustained by the thing that saves us, then it won't be a proper relationship. And that is exactly why Hosea is quoted. Let's take a look at Hosea. We're going to look at Hosea chapter 2. We're going to start with... um, Yeah, we're just going to look at Hosea chapter 2. In that day you will call your brothers Ami, my people, and you will call your sisters Ruhama, the ones I love. But now bring charges against Israel, your mother, for she is no longer my wife, and I am no longer her husband. This is God speaking. Tell her to remove the prostitute's makeup from her face and the clothing that exposes her breasts. Otherwise, I will strip her as naked as she was on the day she was born. I will leave her to die of thirst as in a dry and barren wilderness, and I will not love her children, for they were conceived in prostitution. Their mother is a shameless prostitute and became pregnant in a shameful way. She said, I'll run after other lovers and sell myself to them for food and water, for clothing of wool and linen, and for olive oil and drinks. For this reason, I will fence her in with thorn bushes. I will block her path with a wall to make her lose her way. When she runs after her lovers, she won't be able to catch them. She will search for them, but not find them. Then she will think, I might as well return to my husband, for I was better off with him than I am now. She doesn't realize that it was I who gave her everything that she has. The grain, the new wine, the olive oil. I even gave her silver and gold, but she gave all my gifts to Baal. But now I will take the ripened grain and new wine I generously provided each harvest season. I will take away the wool and linen clothing I gave her to cover her nakedness. I will strip her naked in public with all her lovers to look on. No one will be able to rescue her from my hands. I will put an end to her annual festivals, her new moon celebrations and her Sabbath days, all her appointed festivals. I will destroy her grapevines and fig trees, things that she claims that her lovers gave her. I will let them grow into tangled thickets where only wild animals would eat the fruit. I will punish her for all of those times when she burned incense to her images of Baal, when she put on her earrings and jewels and went out to look for her lovers, but forgot about me, says the Lord. But then, I will win her back once again. I will lead her into the desert and speak tenderly to her there. I will return her vineyards to her and transform the valley of trouble into a gateway of hope. 
she will give herself to me there, as she did long ago when she was young, when I freed her from her captivity in Egypt. When that day comes, says the Lord, you will call me my husband instead of my master. Now we're talking about this as a son or a daughter who's accepting something from God. Because God is the provider, right? God is our father. Except that's not really accurate. Because when we think of it in those terms, what we're really saying is that God is our master. And God is our master. And he is the provider. But that's not what he wants. What is it that he said? When that day comes, you will call me my husband. Is that what you call God? That's, that's graphic, right? When that day comes, I will take her to the wilderness and she will give herself to me there. That is speaking of a sexual relationship, right? Now that's a metaphor. But we're talking about an intimate, married level relationship. See, the problem was, is that Romans chapter 1 through 8 is not speaking of God in that way. It's speaking of God as master and man as servant to something. All of a sudden, we realize that we are free. And what is it that we do with this person who freed us? We want to turn him into our master again. Would that be accurate that God is our master? Yes. That's not who God sees himself as to us. And if all we think about is him as the one who provides for us, our savior, our Lord. If that's all we think about, then at best, we're going to be people who work hard for his love, which is offensive to him. And at worst, we're going to be people who are entitled to his love, which is offensive to him. So the first thing that must change for us as believers is to ask ourselves, are we brazen enough to accept that God is not simply another master to us? That he's not simply a father to us, but that he is our husband. How many of you are brazen enough to do that? I am. I've made it very clear that the conversation between me and God and Michelle at varying times is one of those A-B conversations. You can see your way out of it. Right? Because my relationship with God is the most important relationship. And I see myself as the submissive spouse in that relationship. I am God's bride. 
The church is God's bride. My relationship with Michelle is not nearly as important as my relationship with God. And Michelle has made that very clear to me as well. Her relationship with God as God's bride is more important. And we together call God husband. And in us calling him husband, our relationship is stronger and grows. We are so benign in our terminology. God is our father. There's no commitment there. Because if God is our father, we can be any type of child we want to be. And most of us as Christians are pastor's kids, right? No offense to those who are pastor's kids, right, Elio? I'm with you. But most of us are PKs. We set a bad example. You need to stop being a kid. Commit to God. Stop understanding things inappropriately. If you are saved, and it's because of His goodness, and you love Him for it because He first loved you, then how does Romans 12 begin? How does it begin? If you are saved, and it's because He loves you, then you should own that fact and commit yourself to Him as your husband and present yourself to Him as a living sacrifice. If you are having problems doing that, if there are uh, points that you have a hard time with, whether it be money or attendance to you know, the body or living, um, living cohesively in your worldview, like following through with the things that you believe on Sunday but may not believe elsewhere, or speaking to your friends about the Christian hope that you have, or letting your yes be yes and your no be no, and so on and so forth, or reading your scriptures, I would submit to you that maybe you're a little spoiled. Now it makes sense. Paul spent one through eight chapters, and this is Paul, so it's like full. Like with another person, they would have had to spend like books talking about it. But Paul spent one through eight chapters, that's a lot for Paul, talking about that mindset and getting people to the point where he can say, stop being spoiled. I would submit to you that if you're having issues following through with that, you may have forgotten that at one point Christ was your first love. And now he's switched into the role of father or master. And though those roles are true, it's not what he wants. And it's not what you wanted at first either. When we come into our relationship with God, we're so profoundly in love with him. And if we don't maintenance that relationship, read our scripture. Be with other people who have a similar love for God so that we can work each other up into loving God together. If we don't maintenance that relationship, then it fades. 
And then we go off and do other things. And then what do we say when those other things become a problem for us? Well, I guess I'll go back to him because I was taken care of. That's exactly what was said in Hosea, right? Well, I guess I'll go back because I was taken care of. Is that what you do? Maybe not you. What about those other believers in your life who you see as powerless? They're not victorious in their life. The issue isn't sin, my friends. Paul makes it very clear that though sin is an issue, and it's created because of the desires that we have, it's not really an issue to God anymore. Because sin is over. It's done. Christ nailed it to the cross, and it's over. So these people who have issues, they're believers, but they are not victorious in their life as believers, and they are your friends, and they are your family, and you're thinking, um, maybe I can just, you know, maybe there's something wrong, maybe they're doing something. No. The reason that they're having a problem is because they are adulterers. Because they do not see God as their husband. And what they need to do is remember their first love. And the best thing you can do for them is remember your first love. Because that energizes that love. When you were a kid and you didn't genuinely have a crush on somebody, but your friends want you to have a crush on somebody, and they start talking about that somebody in front of you. And they're like, come on, you have a crush on that somebody. Eventually you start thinking, eh, maybe I kind of like that somebody. You guys know what I'm talking about, right? That's not all the time, but that happens, right? Imagine that we as believers are infatuated with God. That we are committed to God. And another believer comes and they see us what are they going to get? Infatuated with God. And they're going to want to commit to God. So you look at the state of the church. The church isn't infatuated with God. I'm not talking about ABF. The church is not infatuated with God. It's infatuated with itself. Might as well be holding up a mirror and making out with itself. We have pastors. If we have pastors, for the record, the rate of people becoming pastors is declining steadily. But if we have pastors, they are interested in making a person feel comfortable. They are not interested in reminding people of their wedding vows to God. When people come into the church... They're not interested in spending time with God. Why? Because when they're there, they count that time as valuable based upon how they feel about the people around them or about the message or about the worship music. What is that? I can be with Michelle, and even if what's going around me sucks... It's the fact that I'm with Michelle that matters. 
So why are we going to all these different places and cycling? Did you know that all these big churches, the, 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 the rate, um, not the rate, the statistic, is that these big churches that have people coming in and out their, their doors, those are not new believers. Those are old believers who are going from church to church to church in a cycle looking for something, looking for something that makes them feel good looking for something to justify their entitlement, entitlement to feel good about themselves because God is their father and God is going to make them feel good and give them what they want because he's a good father. If you understand Romans 1 through 8, you must also understand Romans 9 through 11. There's a reason why they're next to each other. So, what sort of relationship do you have with a God in whom you are secure? Are you continuing to educate yourself about who he is to you? Or do you only educate yourself about who you are to him. See the difference? Do you ask yourself that question? Who is God? Who is my husband? Or do you only communicate with God to tell him about your day? You know? To tell him about what you need. To tell him about how you're growing or your likes or your dislikes, your concerns. Are you being discerning of his character and his personality in your understanding of salvation? Like I said, those things about God are true. Master, father, provider, caretaker, those are true. But he's so much more than that. And you can be his son and his servant and even to some degree his follower. But that doesn't mean you're doing it in a way that he likes. Because it's not about checking boxes. God's a person. He's more a person than we are. Do you take into account his personality in your understanding of your secureness? What sort of relationship do you have with a God in whom you are secure? Go discuss. Go discuss.